Amen. And thank you guys. And let me add my welcome and greeting to you in worship this morning, whether you're here on the third floor, on the second floor, down on the first floor, or watching remotely. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And we're glad that you're here. I will tell you with no reservation that what I get to discuss this morning from God's Word, I think, is one of the most central and foundational texts pretty much in our Bible. So we're going to start with an on-ramp. If you've got your Bibles, please open them to the book of Isaiah and chapter 53. Within about a month's time, we'll be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus together at Easter. And all of that has a backdrop, and it is specifically beginning with Isaiah chapter 53. I want to read these first few verses of Isaiah 53. Some 700 years before the first coming of Christ, the prophet Isaiah writes this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Who is the prophet Isaiah talking about? How you answer that question will probably determine which of the three great grand monotheistic religions you exist within. If you say this is talking about Jesus as the Messiah, that puts you in very unique company. It is the distinctive of Christianity, of who this Jesus is. Keep listening. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that it, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, why am I starting with Isaiah 53 when we are in a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark? This whole spring semester, we've been walking through, and thus far, we've made it through nine chapters of the Gospel of Mark. It's because what Mark is going to tell us in the Gospel of Mark in general, and in chapter 10 in particular, is a very, very large task. He's responding to a common sentiment that is common sense, but that was also default assumption among Judaism. In the Jewish encyclopedia, there is such a thing. In the Jewish encyclopedia, there is an article in the Jewish encyclopedia that references this Jesus of Nazareth. 
And in the Jewish encyclopedia, when they begin to talk about Jesus of Nazareth, the article drops right in and begins where Christ on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Mark chapter 15. Now the Jewish encyclopedia article continues. And this is the quote from the Jewish encyclopedia. It says of Jesus's statement, this last utterance was in all its implications itself a disproof of the exaggerated claim made for him after his death by his disciples. No Messiah could suffer such a death. It is an impossible article of belief which detracts from God's sovereignty and absolute otherness. Now, please hear me. I am in absolutely no way anti-Semitic, nor is this church. This is just the default assumption of Judaism that there's no way Jesus could be Messiah because Messiahs don't die. But brothers and sisters and friends, he did. He absolutely did. That's history. That's what happened. And it is the biggest deal in all of human history. And perhaps this morning, you've never fully come to embrace that. Perhaps for you this morning, it's never actually dawned on you the enormity and the magnitude of what that means. But it is our big idea for the morning. It is our big idea for the gospel of Mark. And it is the big idea for chapter 10. And it goes like this. Jesus is the suffering servant. Now, when I say that, I don't merely mean, gosh, that was too bad that he died and all. Huh. No, I mean, he is the one of Isaiah 53 that was crushed for our iniquities. The, the, the iniquity and the trespass of all of us was laid on him. It's Jesus. The king has come and his kingdom is here, but it's not what anybody expected. Now, we're going to spend some time this morning walking through Mark chapter 10. Because the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. It's not a history lesson. We're not even going to have three points in a poem. We're going to look at Jesus. Because the more we look at him, his life, his teachings, his ministry, the more our faith grows and we are changed. So now if you've got your Bibles, flip it to the right, a couple hundred pages at least, and go to the Gospel of Mark beginning in chapter 10. As you're turning there, I will let you know to remind you that all this time for the first eight chapters of Mark, we've been establishing who is the Christ? Who is this Jesus? The second eight chapters are all about what he must do. What will he now go and accomplish? He's been up in the north in Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now he points it down south and he begins to move his disciples and his entourage down south. And so in chapter 10, he left there, that meaning Capernaum, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan called Perea. And so Jesus is going to go back and forth, east, west, across the Jordan River in central Israel. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Every time he stops, people will just flock to him. And they just, wanted to, they just wanted to drink from the fountain of his wisdom, of his teaching, of his thoughts. And Pharisees came up. And in order to test him, Eh, parezo, the word is to trap him, to try to hook him and snare him. In order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this is a loaded political question. You might remember way back in chapter six, we called that the longest day. We find out that the king in the north, Herod Antipas, 
well, he's married his brother's ex-wife, and she actually initiated that divorce. His half-niece of Herod Antipas named Herodias, she divorced Philip so that she could marry Herod Antipas. And so there was this hot debate going on among the religious leaders and the legislators and the teachers and the Pharisees, and they wanted to know about divorce. Is it legal? Is it lawful? And this is a political move. They're trying to get Jesus to commit to one side or the other because there were two rabbinic schools that would debate the issue of divorce. As Moses talks about it in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, they want to know, where do you stand on divorce, Jesus? Now we've got them. Because there were two rabbinic schools. There was the school of Shammai that was very conservative that said no, Divorce is only permissible in the occasion of infidelity or adultery, and it's only initiatable by the husband. But there was another rabbinic school, the school of Hillel, and they were much more progressive and aggressive. And they said, no, no, no. It is permissible if she spoils the soup. She's out of there. And so they want to know, Jesus, who are you with? Are you with Shammai or are you with Hillel? And they're hoping that maybe, just maybe, Jesus will say something provocative and inflammatory and that Herod Antipas might hear about it and he might, Herod Antipas might do to Jesus what he's already done to John the Baptist when John the Baptist said, hey, this divorce of yours is not lawful. It's not right. And John lost his head over it. So these Pharisees are trying to triangulate Jesus and make him answer a question to trap him. But Jesus, well, he's Jesus, man. He's Jesus. You don't trap the God-man. You just don't do it. He's the greatest rabbi ever. He's a brilliant teacher. And oh, by the way, he also happens to be fully indwelled by the Spirit of God. He is sinless, and he's also divine. So good luck with your little scheme there. Watch what Jesus does. He answered them, what did Moses command you? This is all very, very particular and very, very tactical and technical. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And that was true. That's not what Jesus asked. What did Moses command you? They were both sides interpreting Deuteronomy 24 saying that Moses commanded divorce. Jesus goes, "Uh uh-uh, no, no. I'll tell you what Moses commanded. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. See, Jesus... (laughs) comes on the scene and he sees the violence one against another. He sees people not loving toward one another. He sees people living in animosity and aggression to one another and it crushes him because Jesus, the creator, Colossians tells us, created people that they would be my life for y'all kinds of beings. And instead, people have become your lives for me kinds of beings. And it manifests in all kinds of disgusting ways in marriages and communities and churches and families and neighborhoods. So Jesus says, no, no, no. It's because of your, he lumps them in with the problem that was going on back in Moses' day, 1,500 years earlier. And then Jesus does something absolutely Jesus-like. But from the beginning of creation, oh, you want to talk about Moses? No, 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 no. Let's go back even further. Let's rewind the clock several thousand years. Let's go back to the very foundations of the earth, Jesus says. Because, you know, I was there and it's pretty cool. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, you have to understand what Jesus is doing. The king is here. The kingdom has come. The kingdom of God was was implemented and initiated 
when creation began and God created this being, this species, there were supposed to be two lives that come together to create a new life form. And that joined life form would actually create a third thing that would be prosperous and that would multiply and that would bless the entire planet. That was the plan. But then the fall happened and the whole thing got corrupted and corroded right away. He shall make them man and female in verse 7. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What did Moses command? Oh, divorce in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus goes, no, no, no. I'm sorry, I'm talking about Genesis 1 and 2. That's what Moses commanded. There is a life that takes place when two are joined. This is not a flippant thing that you simply get to dismantle and unwind. There is a new life that God has co-created, and you and I get to be partners in procreation. What therefore God has joined together, let not man usurp sovereignty and separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So Jesus is actually very, very brief when he responds to the Pharisees. And he seems to be emphasizing the sanctity of marriage above and beyond the severity of divorce. Let's make sure we understand that because Jesus has in mind to teach about the kingdom, not to emphasize the consequences of our fallenness. This passage has been ripped out of context way too much to bully people unnecessarily and unhelpfully. So they go into the house, wherever they're staying there in central Israel and Judea, and the disciples go, hey, what's the deal? Help us understand this. And Jesus says to them in verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's very, very quick and efficient. He doesn't give a whole bunch of laundry list of if-then contingency plans. Now, He's referring specifically to what Herodias did, that she divorced her husband and married Herod Antipas. Why is this important for Mark to include this? Because Mark is writing to a primarily Roman audience. In Jewish law, a woman could not divorce her husband. But in Roman law, she absolutely could. And so Mark's wanting his readers, and by extension, us to understand Jesus knows and he cares about this. But what he really wants is a kingdom of people who live their lives for others, not others' lives for them. So Jesus says, listen, yes, if you've divorced inappropriately and remarried, it's adultery. And the disciples are like, wow, but he says it in private so as not to get snagged. So what do we do with that? Listen, whatever floor you're on, you're either directly affected by this or you're indirectly affected by this. And I hear people all the time try to wrestle with this. I'm not gonna go into a full diatribe sermon from 1 Corinthians 7 or Ephesians 5 of what we do, but here's the deal. If you happen to be one of those people who went through a divorce and remarried, is that the unpardonable, unforgivable sin? Absolutely not. There is grace at the cross of Jesus. But don't wink and grin at it. Repent. Seek reconciliation to the extent that you can and live in light of the grace of the gospel. What if that kind of thing happened to you? We certainly don't want you, if you've been a victim of an egregious act, to be treated like an evildoer in this place, by no means. What if that happened to you and you divorced inappropriately and you remarried? Should you divorce your current spouse and try to remarry your first spouse? By no means. But don't wink and grin at it either. Repent, seek reconciliation and wellness, and live in the light of the gospel. What we're going to find out from Jesus and later from the Apostle Paul is that there are three grounds permissible biblically for divorce. I'm not going to elaborate on all these, but the three A's, 
that are egregious, but the three A's that are allowed biblically for divorce are, well, adultery. Because sexual intimacy is the oath of the covenant between a man and a woman. And when someone executes another oath, it violates the covenant to begin with. The second one is abandonment. If one of the partners simply just departs and deserts, there is grounds for divorce there. The third is assault, which is actually a part of abandonment. If all compassion, care, concern, nurture has been withdrawn, and now it's aggression, it's animosity, that's similar to abandonment. For those things, the Bible permits divorce. But I want to be very clear. The Bible does not require divorce. The hope is always for reconciliation in community, through God's word, fed by God's spirit, such that the kingdom of God breaks forth in unexpected places so that life burgeons forth from death. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to say, see, the world is upside down and inside out, but I have landed. And I'm trying to begin the dawn breaking forth of the kingdom of Christ. It is here. Verse 13, he continues on. And they were bringing children to him there in that same house in Judea that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Mustn't inconvenience Jesus after all. Jesus has got an empire to build, they're thinking. And so all these families are bringing their kids that Jesus might just touch them and bless them. I have to remind you, just the previous chapter, chapter nine, for those of you who are not good at math, just the previous chapter, up in Capernaum, little children were coming and the disciples are rebuking them. And Jesus says, stop that. I want the kids to come. One chapter later, it's less than 100 miles south. The disciples are getting going, stop it, get out of the way. We've got an empire to build. Jesus does not take kindly to this at all. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. The gospel writer Mark shows more emotion in Jesus than any other gospel writer. He was indignant. This word is a strange word. It has the idea of intensely grieved such that it moves you to anger. It's not just that he had a knee-jerk reflex. He saw it and he was grieved like, no, those are precisely the kinds of people that I want near me. Don't miss that. He was indignant and he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. It's an interesting verb construction. Two verbs, stop stopping them and let them come. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. We'll talk more about this in a moment. These children, they just come unabashedly with their arms to their sides, no awkwardness. They just go, Jesus! And they just love him, full of band, and they, boom, and they just flock to him. Not trying to be cool, not trying to be like, so Jesus, how's your mom and them? Yeah, no, no, these little kids, they're just, boom, and they're jumping up in his lap. And Jesus goes, that's how I want people to come to me just full on with wild abandon. Let them come for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, he wants his disciples to understand, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. That does not mean childish. It means childlike. And he took them in his arms. <laughs> this just gets me every time I read it. The wording here is so warm and tender and compassionate. This is what it says in verse 16. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. I don't know what you think about Jesus when you think about Jesus. Some University of California Berkeley hippie with blonde hair and a narrow nose and blue eyes and Birkenstocks. It just sort of floats around the surface of the earth about two and a half feet off the surface. That ain't Jesus. He just grabs these kids and he just, mm, he, you know he makes a sound. Just, mm, he just loves them. Do you know 
that when Jesus thinks of hugging you, he makes a sound? This is what he's talking about. He just loves them. Can't get enough of them. These otherwise socially invisible, these culturally irrelevant ones, Jesus is crazy about them. I hope and pray you will see the compassion of Christ as he thinks about these otherwise useless people who cannot pay him back in the slightest. And Jesus is completely and totally fine with that because he knows nobody has anything that he needs anyway. Now you have to have that as a backdrop or the next section of this chapter will totally fall out of meaning for you. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, so Mark is still moving us. The tension is building. He's ratcheting up the intensity. He's moving us south. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him. Now, Luke will call him a a young ruler. Matthew will call him a rich young ruler. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this question has been misused and misapplied. People think, okay, well, he's asking how to be saved. No, he's not. He's a Jew. (laughs) To the Jewish person, then as now, there are two ages. There is the present age, which is terrible. There's sin and brokenness and opposition and persecution and pogroms and everything is broken and upside down. And then there's the age to come. Not even thinking about heaven. They're just thinking about the age to come when Messiah will institute and implement a kingdom of righteousness and the grapes will be the size of soccer balls and the trains will run on time and it'll be awesome. So this rich young man was going, what do I got to do to make sure I'm in the age to come? Jesus, sensing an opportunity, sensing an opening, with the backdrop of what's just happened with the children, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now that's confused people, and we have a tendency to yada, yada, yada right past that. Don't. Just put your finger in there, hold on, we'll come back to it here in just a moment. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The table of contents of the Ten Commandments, there's two tables. There's the first four that are vertical. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, are vertical. They have to do with our relationship with God. The second six have to do with horizontal relationships. Jesus nuances that slightly here. He gives the second table but he just gives five of them and he sort of combines numbers eight and nine when he adds don't defraud. But he very peculiarly, interestingly, leaves out number 10, which is do not covet, don't be greedy. And so Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't defraud, don't do all these things. But he leaves off the 10th commandment. Now, what's veiled in there is the first thing that Jesus actually says to this young person is the first four commandments. Why do you call me good? You shall have no other gods before me. There is only God alone who is good. So what Jesus has done is very cleverly, brilliantly established the first four. And now he sets him up for the second six, but he leaves off the 10th. And the rich young person says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now there's a lot of things being said in our day and age about how important it is to adult well. I'm not very good at adulting. I should be better at adulting. This guy's going, oh, I've been adulting like crazy, baby. I've crushed it since I became a son of the law. My bar mitzvah, I have been adulting well. I have kept those five you just mentioned perfectly. Jesus is about to say, but you've missed the 10th, and so you've therefore missed the first nine, which is precisely what Paul will say in Romans 7. It's that 10th commandment that makes me violate the first nine. 
Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Where have we seen that? With the children in the house. Jesus looks at him and goes like, oh. we expect Jesus to go tisk tisk. You arrogant, I can't believe you. No. His heart just goes out to him. Jesus looks at him and loves him and says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And again, a reference back to the first four commandments. Have no other gods before me, but you do have a God. Your resources, your wealth, your self-reliance, that's the thing that you worship. That's the thing that you build your life around and on. Remember, Jesus has already told the disciples in a boat in Mark chapter six, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. What was that? Self-reliance, the illusion of control, the illusion of strength and substance. You have a false God, Jesus tells this guy. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, the young man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. And the disciples' collective jaw is on the floor. They can't believe what they've just seen. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, oh, y'all are shocked, are you? Disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And they have just managed to pick up their jaws and they drop them again. You have to understand, in Judaism, the idea that the wealthy were in was default. Everybody assumed that because what had happened is the rabbis had taken Deuteronomy that promised prosperity for obedience. Those promises that were for the nation of Israel, the rabbis and the teachers applied them to themselves. Those promises are not for individual people. The promises of Deuteronomy were for the nation of Israel. But the rabbis said, oh, no, no, I'm doing good. Look at me, I'm loaded. See, I am experiencing God's prosperity. Clearly, I'm going to make it into the age to come. And they taught that for generations. And so everybody just was held captive to that idea as an assumed baseline fact. And so Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. Let me explain to you. That's not who gets in. The disciples, verse 24, were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children. Now, this is not a term of endearment. This is a term of immaturity. Children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He reminds them a second time. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of you have perhaps heard, oh, that's actually just a reference to the needle gate in Jerusalem where a camel had to take off his pack and kneel down. False, there's no such thing as a needle gate in Jerusalem or any other city. Doesn't exist. Jesus means precisely what he says. It's easier for a camel, the largest mammal in Palestine, to go through the eye of a sewing needle. In other words, it's impossible. It can't happen. It's like saying, you might as well put the ocean in a bottle. You can get some moisture in there, not the ocean. It's impossible. It's hyperbole. And they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to them, um, they said to him, then who can be saved? If the rich aren't in, then what possible chance does anybody else have? Because that's how it works, Jesus. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. In other words, oh, who can be saved? Nobody. Praise God, he continues. It's impossible, but not with God. For, for with God, all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Oh, we're not rich, but we, we got rid of everything. We're surely in, right? We're surely in. By the way, let me just tell you, by global standards, every one of us in this room are fabulously wealthy compared to the global standards. So don't let yourself off the hook of conviction too quickly. We are all 
gifted at smacking down on the leaven sandwiches of the Pharisees and Herod. All of us, we tend to rely too much on our resources and our own strength and our own capabilities and, as in my case, my own stunning good looks. Verse 28, Peter says, look, we followed, we left everything to follow you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, and this is the surprise. This is not what anybody expects. They expect him to say in the age to come. He doesn't. He blows our minds. Who will receive it now in this time, meaning in this age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. He leaves out father because there's one father. Do you see? Even in the here and the now, in the present age, you will receive many brothers and sisters and possessions. Oh, it's a beautiful foreshadowing. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You guys, you guys, you guys, Jesus says, I'm turning this upside down and inside out. You think you know how the world works. God's economy is different. You think you know how the kingdom will be. God's economy is different. And yes, this is a foreshadowing for the present age when look around, look around. Look, seriously, seriously, look around. Look at the brothers and the sisters. Look at, look at mom. You want houses? We got several hundred represented in this place. In the present age, we are a family. I got all my sisters and me. They should put that in a song sometime. Jesus is saying, this is how it's gonna be. The kingdom is gonna be a whole bunch of people who live their lives for others. And when you got a whole bunch of people who are living my life for y'all and all of our resources are available in love, now that's the kingdom. The kingdom is where the will of God is executed perfectly, but more precisely, more particularly, it's where people live my life for y'all. And Jesus is the suffering servant that enables all of that to happen. You hear him talking to the Pharisees of your hardness of hearts that leaves you wanting more. Well, what is the cure for that hardness of heart? Can't that be softened? And Jesus is walking around going, watch. Mm. He is the cure for the hardness of heart. Well, we're down in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. This is rising in elevation. Mark continues the intensity. Now we're driving to Jerusalem. Jesus understands that the disciples are still not getting it. He's given them his program in chapter eight. Hey, I'm going headlong at full throttle to Jerusalem where they're going to kill me. They're gonna hand me over. They're gonna betray me. They're gonna shame me, mock me, flog me. I'll be dead. I'll be buried, but I will rise again. He told them that in chapter eight. They did not react well. He told them in chapter nine, they did not react well. He's now going to tell them for the third time what he's planning on doing. This will not catch him by surprise. So verse 32 they're on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them as a rabbi does and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. This is not at all what we expected. The other followers were saying, this is not how this is supposed to go at all. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, this Daniel 7 title that they had seen that quick on the Mount of Transfiguration, clothed in cloud and glory and majesty, that guy, the son of man, will be delivered over because Jesus is the suffering servant. He will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, that's the legislators, and they will condemn him to death 
and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that is the Romans, because the Jewish people didn't have the rights to execute people, and so they would involve the Gentiles. It would now be a global affair. They will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they'll flog him, and they'll kill him. Remember the Jewish encyclopedia? No Messiah can suffer that way. Unless he does. Unless he did. After three days, he will rise. Now, don't look any further. You would think, this is the third time Jesus has dropped this hammer on them. You would think all 12 would face plant and go, you are the promised one of Isaiah 53. It's you. You are the one on whom all of my affliction, I mean, all of my iniquities will be laid on you by your wounds. Will I be healed? No, no. If it wasn't true, it would be unbelievable. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we're told, just to make sure we understand this, because Matthew's gospel tells us that their mommy joined them for this request, a lady named Salome. Salome is probably Mary's sister, so it's likely that James and John are probably Jesus's first cousins, and so they think they have an inside track. You can just kind of see them like they walk up, and one's kind of chewing his nail, the other one's scratching his ear, and they're like, you know, hey, Jesus, get over here. Come here, come here, come here, come here. That's cool and all, but teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He's just said, I'm about to be betrayed, mocked, spat upon, flogged, shamed, killed. And they're like, yeah, yeah, uh, hey, we got a favor. Come here, come here. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, asterisk that verse, because you're going to see that exact question verbatim here in just a moment. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Hey, that's, that's stuff about the dying and the flogging. Yo, I don't know, whatever. but listen, when you get elected, we want to be on your cabinet. I want to be chief of staff, and Jimmy here, he wants to be like sec def. He wants to be in charge of the army, and we're just going to rock and roll, Jesus. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And Jesus is going, Wait, are, are, you serious? Are, you, are you kidding? They just do not get it at all. Jesus said to them, you would think fire and brimstone, but no, he actually says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? And by the way, the cup is a Jewish reference to the cup of wrath. You see all through the Old Testament. Israel would drink the cup of God's wrath when the Assyrians came through and slaughtered them. Israel would drink the cup of God's wrath when Babylon would come through and slaughter them. Israel would drink the cup of God's wrath when they were taken out of the land, deported, exiled. And Jesus says, I, I, I'm, I'm going to take the whole cup of God's wrath, the entire nation took in the Old Testament, I'm about to drink it all to the dregs. Do you, do you think you want to share in this with me? Do you think you can be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Buried, 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 dead, dead, dead. And they said to him, we can. Yeah, this is gonna be awesome. They have no idea what they're saying. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. James was the very first of the apostles to be martyred in Acts chapter 12. John was the very last, they bookend. As an old man, having been exiled on a barren rock with no fresh water, boiled in oil, but survived. Oh, they did drink the cup with the baptism with which he was baptized. You will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the, ter when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why were they so mad? Because they had their own plans. They had their own delusions of grandeur, and James and John beat them to the punch. 
Wait, what? No, I was going to be Secretary of the Interior. What are you talking? James and John, you guys cheated. And so they become indignant as well. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. I'm turning it upside down and inside out. You guys, God's economy doesn't work like yours. What you need is for your iniquities to be laid on me so that the kingdom can break forth and the new age can dawn already now. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Verse 45, for even the son of man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus himself quotes from Isaiah 53. To give himself as a ransom. That word is absolutely massive and huge. It's lutron. It's not what we think of for kidnapping. No, no. This is the idea of a foreign army fighting and the king or the general gets captured. And they get taken back to enemy headquarters. And they're not killed. They're just enslaved with the most grinding, dehumanizing, inhumane sort of slavery and torture ever. And they will live the rest of their lives like that unless an exorbitant lutron, a ransom price, is paid. And Jesus is saying, all of you, all of you, all of you, you're bound by sin and death and you don't even know. And you're grinding this inhumane life one against another, one against another. There must be a price paid. And that's why I'm here. The Son of Man, the great and glorious, majestic one, shrouded in cloud. I've come to pay the price. And you want to be glorified now? James and John, don't you understand how serious and how enormous this is? No, they don't get it. Well, they came to Jericho. They keep moving. Now they've crossed the Jordan from Perea into Judea. They're now going to start heading to the west towards Jerusalem. So they come to Jericho. And he was, he was uh, leaving Jericho when his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. Mark wants you to know, Bar-Timaeus. That's what that means. And so he's writing to a Roman audience. So he says, Bar-Timaeus. That means the son of Timaeus. He was sitting by the roadside. And when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. He calls him by his Davidic title, this blind guy, this blind guy who cannot see. Hears that it's Jesus. And he goes, son of David, have mercy. He somehow at least knows enough to know that the son of David, the Davidic king, is the one who will institute all the promises made to Abraham. It is the Davidic covenant being fulfilled that will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And he goes, it's him, it's you. I know why you're here. Have mercy. And many rebuked him. Oh, these guys, they rebuked him. Mustn't inconvenience Jesus after all. We've got an empire to build. They rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I know why you're here. I can't get to you. Will you come to me? This guy says, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, be cheered up, take courage, get up. He's calling you. The same guys that were telling him to shut up are now saying, hey, cheer up. Like, These guys, does this sound like church people? Don't answer that. <laughs> and throwing off his cloak. Now that's not what you might expect. This is Jericho. It's not brisk and fresh in Jericho. It's about the temperature of a rocket when it's this high off the ground 
all the time. His outer cloak is not for warmth. It's what he would spread out to receive his alms. What he would receive, the, the charitable giving from other people. He just takes it and he throws it. I'm done with that. Before anything actually happens, he throws his cloak aside. I love that. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> the same exact questions he's asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Now you have to understand this, this healing here is the great grand final bookend of the healings that began way back in chapter seven. Remember Jesus goes way up to Tyre and Sidon, modern day Lebanon, and he heals a, a deaf and mute person and then he talks to the Gentile woman and then he goes all the way over to the Decapolis and he heals a deaf and blind guy and he heals a blind guy here and now he's gonna heal a blind guy. He goes, see, I'm here to give sight to the blind. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. <laughs> I just want you to make me see. I don't need stuff. I don't need glory. I don't need power. I don't need honor. I just need for you, Jesus, to make me see. I wonder... Have you ever just asked him to make you see? Or do you still just want some stuff? And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. The object of his faith has made him well. And immediately, <laughs> Mark, and immediately, and immediately, the action movie, and immediately he recovered his sight and took off. No, 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 no. He followed Jesus on his way. Bartimaeus is going to go all the way to Jerusalem and he's going to see the Son of Man scourged, flogged, beard plucked out, spat upon, mocked, shamed, stripped naked, hanged on a cross so that on him all of Bartimaeus' iniquities will be laid. By those wounds, all of Bartimaeus will be healed. See, Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, not merely a martyr, not a pathetic loser who failed and died, not even a good rabbi, not a nice man. He is the suffering servant. So what do we take away from that? Three quick implications, three quick points. Net of the king coming and his kingdom being present. Three quick implications since Jesus is the suffering servant. Number one goes like this. There are no disposable relationships. <laughs> As a pastor, I have the privilege and the pain of seeing so many people used up and consumed and tossed aside like a fruit roll-up wrapper because they've served their purpose and they're discarded. But what Jesus is telling us in his teaching on divorce and children and the blind, there are no disposable relationships. Mark is writing to a bunch of people in Rome who are wondering, how does life work? Because everything of this Roman empire is a grist mill that takes me in, chews me up and spits me out and I'm left with less than I had before. Mark's going, oh no, 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 no. The king has come. His kingdom is here. You can be from the future age. Living in the present, you can be. But you have to stop thinking that everyone else exists for you. It is a rethinking of your thinking. It is repentance. It is, oh, oh, this day, this day, it's my life for them. 
And if there will be a relationship that is disposed, if there will be someone who takes the hit, I will follow my Jesus. But I will not let you be disposed of. I will. No disposable relationships. Jesus sees the corrupt culture and he explains that the human horizontal relationships and the interactions are the hallmark of the kingdom of God breaking in. The kingdom of God is where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And the primary way that is manifest and demonstrated is in how we love one another. Jesus is the king. He makes life work. And it's all about others not about self, not about amassing and obtaining and acquiring and accomplishing. That actually drives you further and further down. It's about others. Head in a swivel. What do you need? Head in a swivel. What do you need? And Jesus raises us up. There are no disposable relationships. Second point goes like this. The gospel plus anything is nothing. And the, of course, the adjacent corollary, the gospel plus nothing is Everything. Now, we see this in the teaching with the rich young ruler. Here's the deal. The gospel calls us to be childlike. And there are two ways in which we are called to be childlike for the rest of our lives. And we see it in that little three-verse passage where Jesus welcomes the children. What are children? What does it mean to be childlike with Jesus? Number one, children are dependent. <laughs> Those of you who are parents, you know this. Children are dependent. They actually understand that their entire life comes from their parents, and they have no problem with that. Sure, they have a little bit of a sinful entitlement complex that emerges every now and then in lots of sinful ways, but they know that if they were left alone and without their parent, they are utterly helpless. That's how we are to think of Jesus. I'm utterly dependent on him, arms to the side, just going, that guy, it's him. I ain't got him, I got nothing. I got him, I got everything. That's how a child feels with his parents. Children are dependent. The other thing, children expect to be accepted. Did you know that? Your kids just assume and expect that they're good. They're gonna run and jump in your lap. They're not like, hey, dad, we, we good, we good, we good. No, there are three. They're just gonna jump in your lap. They expect to be accepted. That's what it means to be childlike with Jesus cherished at the center of his attention and his affection. And so what the gospel comes in, it does. If you're feeling too high about yourself, if you're feeling too low about yourself, no, no, you can't feel too high because you are dependent. You can't feel too low because you are accepted. See, the gospel, it lowers the high places. It raises the low places. It goes, I love you. I see you. I know you. I want to be with you, is what Christ is telling us in the gospel. The gospel plus anything is nothing. No, we're not to be childish like the disciples. Be childlike every single day. I don't know what kind of trigger you need to have. Put it on dry erase marker on your bathroom mirror. Dependent, accepted. Put it on a sticky note on your steering column so that when that thing blows, you just get it tattooed right on your face. <laughs> Dependent, accepted, childlike. That's the gospel. Third point, serve now, glory later. Serve now, Glory later. The king has come and his kingdom is here. It's all about the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. His will is that we love one another. But so long as each of us as individuals remains our own top priority in attention and affection, all we're ever going to do is propagate the cultural categories of scarcity, oppression, violence, fear, or perhaps worse of all, indifference. Like, I don't even see you. 
You know why? Because you don't matter. Because I matter. And that's what's wrong with the world. We'll always do that. That's our default wiring right out of the package unless we trust Jesus and we see that he is the suffering servant upon whom all of my iniquities have been laid. Our glory is not our project. Our glory is Jesus' project. Do you trust him to raise you at the last? To give you in this age and that age a hundredfold what you are entitled to. Our serving and loving one another with warm, sincere embrace, that's our project. It's so much more than a momentary burst of determination to do better tomorrow. No, 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 no. It's a daily intentionality of rethinking our thinking to be the kingdom here and now in whatever God puts you, whatever context he places you. We are, as we say all the time with this campus, we are from the future. And we have been blessed with such resources that we are unleashed to give our lives away to one another without a consideration of consequence. Ooh, that might cost me. Ooh, that might cost me. Who cares? One day you'll be dead. So give lavishly. Give profligately. That's the kind of kingdom that our world is desperate for. So to be very clear, for you and for me, the kingdom of God equals, in a word, others. It's others. It's not piety. It's not moralism, behavior modification. It's simply others. How would that impact your marriage? What if your spouse was no longer the person that you just consumed from to feel better about yourself, hypothetically speaking? How would that impact your parenting or your son or being a son or being a daughter, that those other people in your sphere of influence are not merely consumers. They are opportunities for you to be a giver. How would that impact your looking and your living in this community of East Texas in downtown Tyler? How would that impact your engagement in the church? Is there no cure for the hardness of hearts and the upside down, inside out, jacked upness of our world? Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the answer. He's the king. And the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. So for some of you, you know a lot about what Jesus did. Do you know why Jesus did what Jesus did? Do you know that it's you? It really is. Oh, I know about all the stuff that you regret. So does he. Mm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who is the suffering servant, who will come again as conquering king. And until such time as he does, Father, would you energize us by your spirit, equip us by your word, love us through your people, that we would be others-oriented, we know that it's your plan and your purpose, your project for this world. So may it be exactly as I have prayed, or even better. Father, if there is someone here this morning that somehow managed to make it into a Bible church and they don't know you, would you move irresistibly in their lives and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? And may all of their iniquities be laid on him. And by his wounds, may they be healed. In this age... 
and in the age to come. And Father, for the rest of us who have known you for a very long time, would you remind us of the centrality of the kingdom of Christ in our hearts to live our lives for others? And would you receive all the glory? We'll trust you for hours later. Help us to be childlike, dependent, and accepted. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.